0: Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Elland. What would you do if your child was suffering hundreds and hundreds of seizures a month? As a parent, I'm sure we'd do anything in our power. Today, our guest is Forrest Hurd from California. His son, Silas, has a rare form of epilepsy, but the family is fighting with local authorities who want to regulate medical marijuana. Forrest, good of you to do this. Thanks very much. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. What
0: type of epilepsy does Silas have?
1: There are several types of rare, what are considered rare, catastrophic forms of epilepsy. A lot of people are familiar with Dravet syndrome because they've heard of Charlotte's Web and Charlotte Fiji. Silas has a rare form of epilepsy called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Essentially, they're named after the doctors, but it's just another form of what's considered a catastrophic, intractable Type of epilepsy, meaning that it does not respond uh, to medicine. How old is Silas? Silas is nine now.
0: Nine. Yeah. Now, when did these seizures first begin?
1: They started when he was just about four years old. Uh, Silas was born healthy with no uh, signs of trouble. Uh, something I try to talk to parents about a lot. You know, our children don't come with a sign on them that says they're going to have a, a genetic or rare disorder. Uh, so he was born perfectly healthy, hit all his benchmarks up until about four years old uh, when the seizures started.
0: Now, did he suffer any fall or any physical trauma when uh, when he was four to bring this on?
1: You know, not that we're aware of. Uh, the only thing that they found is in the extensive, you know, doctor's appointments and tests. And one of the MRIs they showed a, a small hole in his frontal. Uh, cortex, which may have been a cyst, you know, something relatively innocent, but it happened in just the right spot in the brain where it could be the cause of what, you know, steered his life from having all the opportunity in the world to to live in a a very difficult existence of of living with rare epilepsy.
0: Now, when he was four and suffered his first seizure, what was it like for you?
1: Well, you know, just with any parent, you know, well, the thing is, without going you know, too far in depth for time, when kids are around for it, I come to find out it's actually not very rare for them to, to have a seizure or for seizures to start. And the majority of those kids grow out of them. So, you know, I had worked with children for 16 years uh, prior to, you know, my son becoming ill. I had worked with kids with, with seizure disorders at times. So I wasn't, you know, I was obviously highly concerned, but but at the same time, I was like, you know, the doctors were telling us he could grow out of this and it was it could be okay. But very quickly, I knew that something was, was very wrong because from the time of his first seizure, it was um, a matter of weeks, you know, not months until he had another one. And it was a matter of months, not, you know, years when he was having them every day. So it it, it came on very rapidly and, and very quickly. We knew that we weren't dealing with just, say, you're running the mill epilepsy.
0: Yeah, you're right about kids growing out of it. My youngest brother had epilepsy when uh he was about uh, Silas's age, but he grew out of it. And yeah,
1: it's not uncommon. Yeah.
0: So, besides this this devastating epilepsy that Silas has, how has this been in terms of his physical and emotional development?
1: Well, it's been it's been significant um Silas is nine now, and I would say on a lot of levels, you know, he's functioning at maybe about four, four and a half cognitively. So the relentless nature of the seizures, the nature of the condition in itself um, causes significant developmental delays, and it's really, um, you know, puts Silas in a position to, to, no matter what happens, need care for the rest of his life.
0: And how has this been in terms of uh, the the physical the emotional strain on you and your wife and your family?
1: Obviously it's it's significant. It, I wouldn't wish it on on my worst enemy. I mean, as Silas progressed, at times he was having over 2,000, 2,500 seizures a month. When we're told when you're told you're out of medical options, you're forced to face your own child's mortality and seizing to death is something that is not quick and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen quickly. So as a, as a parent having to sit there and watch your child degrade slowly, watch him lose cognitive skills that he had prior. I don't know how else to spell it out other than that, to try to put yourself in that position to imagine how horrific That can be, you know, I've talked to lawmakers and tried to give them examples of just imagine their children or their granddaughters or their grandsons or their cousins, you know, living with them. And then out of nowhere, at any time, someone could walk in the house and tase that child with a taser. And there's nothing you can do about it. And imagine how horrific and helpless that would feel. Now imagine that person was going to come back and continue that process until that child passed away. Um, that sounds extreme, but it's not extreme from the perspective of a parent with rare epilepsy, because that's exactly what they watch. And it is something that um, I think if people understood how horrific and how traumatizing it was, we would definitely do more to support the families.
0: Corey and I watched the the 10 minute video of uh, Silas and uh, some of the issues that he's had. And my my heart is. Really goes out to you and your family because this is extremely difficult to deal with, to see your your son writhing and going through these these various uh, states of epilepsy. It was really heartbreaking, wasn't it? Yeah, Clark?
2: yeah, it really was. That it, uh, it's an eye opener. It's the real eye opener. I think everybody should watch that video. Actually,
0: now Silas has an older sister, uh, does he?
1: He does. He does. He has an older sister named Abigail.
0: And uh, how has she dealt with this?
1: Well, well, I think she's dealt with it amazingly. But she is, and we are all all human. So to say that it hasn't been traumatic on her growing up would would be you know really downplaying her experience. Um, it has definitely caused her to grow up probably more than she should have to at her age. There's not many kids that have to deal with, you know, watching their brother have CPR performed on them, running the deal with rescue meds, the trauma of the experience, which you see in some of that video um, that is captured with her fear of us just not knowing if this is going to be the seizure that is the last one. You know, to say that it's, it it isn't um, extremely traumatic would not be fair to her. But with that being said, you know, she handles things with such amazing grace that I'm often humbled by how well she she deals with it.
0: Now, when Silas has a seizure, it's my understanding based on watching that video that's, that not all seizures are the same, he doesn't react the same way. Is that correct?
1: That's right. You know, come to find out, you know, when a lot of people envision a seizure, they envision a tonic-clonic or more commonly known as a grand mal seizure. Come to find out there are hundreds of different types. Silas has, we've documented 10 different types of seizures that he has. That's that's uncommon in epileptics Gosh. to have several different kinds. But he will have different kinds of seizures, yes, and some are more dangerous than others.
0: What was it like for you when you took Silas out in public, not knowing when or if he would have seizures?
1: It's it's part of the overall picture of what these families go through. and In the video I put out there, it, it is hard to watch, but I felt that it was necessary because... Our brains aren't wired to understand just through conversation. To say someone has a lot of seizures does not articulate well enough the experience of having to deal with this 24 hours a day. You know, I really felt as soon as the cannabis laws started really putting children and families like this on the back burner, I had no other option, I felt, than to really put it in their face as to here is what these families are experiencing. And here's just our story. To be able to explain what it's like to have that constant fear of anxiety, it, it's a difficult one to sh- to share in words. But just getting in the car is is a challenge, and, and just going to the store is a challenge. You know, right now my daughter's in a play, and the school system sends out these you know pick up your kids here, pick them up there. Um, those things that should be very simple are sometimes almost impossible, especially if Silas begins showing signs of seizures. We can see him coming. Um, it's A constant state of anxiety. And unfortunately, one of the things I try to highlight is our societies unintentionally make things even harder on families who are going through um, nightmare situations because they're just not aware of what they're going through and the challenges that they face.
0: You know, you're absolutely right because you tell someone your child has seizures and they have an image of a child having a seizure. But when you see the video and you see what you and your family goes through and what poor little silas goes through it really gives you a different perspective on what you are suffering and what silas is suffering because he doesn't know when a seizure is coming does he
1: no he doesn't
0: no can you tell when a
1: seizure is coming for years we could he would have a what's called like an aura shift or Silas is very unique in that his seizures for a long time were sequential so they would one type of seizure would trigger the next so we could kind of see if something bad was coming but as he gets older and it changes we're getting less and less warning so we are dealing with seizures now that they're just hitting out of nowhere and a lot of children with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome have that which is why if you research The syndrome, excuse me. You see a lot of children with helmets on to protect Mm -hmm. from falls.
0: One of the things that I noticed in the video is that both you and your wife, when he has a seizure, you tell him to breathe. What's behind that?
1: Well, he he stops breathing. And we're very aware that he can't always hear us when we're saying that. Mm -hmm. But um, something like that isn't something that after you go through 100... Or two hundred or a thousand, um, you just get used to it. One of the the biggest risks of death is is, is just that their system shuts down, and, and SUDEP is one of the leading causes of death in epileptics, which is sudden uh, death in epilepsy. So, basically, what you're hearing is is we're scared, and I know that he can't hear us all the time, but he just he stops breathing, and we don't know what else to say but please breathe. And in, it, in some of his seizures, he is aware. He has some form of consciousness, the, the, mon- the myoclonic clusters or the complex partials. So we're able to kind of, he's heard us say it so many times that in some of those seizures, it'll cause him to stop and kind of take a deep breath. And we've noticed if we can keep him breathing regularly, it, it may or may not. We feel like it helps uh, maybe not trigger the next more severe seizure.
0: Forrest, tell us how you came upon cannabis and what that did for Silas.
1: Obviously, Silas having a rare seizure disorder and and medication not working. We got more and more people who had seen the Sanjay Gupta uh, report on cannabis. And here in Northern California, we're really blessed to have a community of people who have been doing this for a long time. I mean, it's it's kind of a mecca of, of cannabis cultivation up here. And I actually got put in touch with some people who had taught, you know, some of the Stanley brothers and and some others about CBD. Um, I ended up meeting the, the the father of the strain Harlequin, who had originally bred Harlequin, and still working with him to this day. And basically, we just had to find out, you know, if it could help Silas. And at the time, initially, you know, before I met some of those folks, we did what all parents do initially which was we heard the, that cbd works we started i started driving it's about a six hours round trip to a dispensary in oakland who had uh, cbd oils and we started just experimenting with high cbd low THC oils and and we spent our life savings on those oils we were spending uh, far over $1,000 a month, uh, sixteen up as high as $2,200 a month on these oils. And um, we never saw a single day seizure-free with Silas. Uh, and I almost made the mistake that a lot of parents make, which is, you know, I was asking people at the dispensaries who – at the time, seemed like they knew a lot, but as I've learned more about cannabis, I, I realized that they don't—they don't know much about really treating rare disorders or how cannabinoids work in the body and, and what you need to know to treat with them. So, we almost gave up, and it wasn't until I started working with people here locally that that really started directing me to other parents who are being successful that I realized I had some homework to do. And I, after about a year, I started really studying clinical proven science, you know, research on the endocannabinoid system, reading all of Dr. Ethan Russo's papers, um, reaching out to Dr. Bonnie Goldstein and other doctors to get feedback and, and learning from them. And I realized that not only had we not been dosing therapeutically with what we had spent our life savings on, but... We hadn't even scratched the surface about what cannabis and cannabinoids had to offer as far as how they modulate and regulate neurotransmitter function in the brain. So long story short, as we started to work with them with a little bit more focus and understanding, we eventually were able to eliminate different cannabinoids it didn't, didn't work until we found uh, a ratio in a, a phenotype that that worked best for Silas and it ended up the first strain that he really responded to well was a strain called Medihaze that we had flown from Europe it was developed in Europe and the, basically we saw that we saw that miracle story where the, the first time we tried that ratio he his seizure stopped. Uh, He went from 86 seizures the day before to zero. It wasn't a a decline. It wasn't 2,500, 1,200, 600. It was 85 seizures on Friday, zero Saturday. And he didn't have even a hint of a seizure for over four months.
2: Wow. Do you remember, Forrest, what the ratio
1: was? Well, the ratio was was two to one, um, you know, but I've learned since then that 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 was just a small part of the entourage effect that was causing it to be successful because uh, two to one ratios don't work across the board with Silas. He responds very specifically to uh, certain phenotypes and terpene profiles. And this is kind of where we know a lot, but the more you know about cannabis, the more you know we have a lot to learn, learn as, yes how those terpenoids are modulating uh the functions of cbd and, and cbg which this is is high in thc so um yeah so th- that's kind of was our journey and and it was wasn't until you know we kind of got comfortable unfortunately thinking okay we found something that's working and it wasn't much longer that our local government at that point, in an effort to tackle what they saw as nuisance commercial activity and people growing cannabis for recreational use to sell, they decided to regulate all of medical all medical cannabis cultivation to go after them, which struck down and took away the ability for us to cultivate for Silas, and we ended up losing the strains that were working for him.:
0: Yeah, wow. Well. What was it like for you and your wife and your daughter to give Silas this uh, medication, this uh, ratio of two to one? I think it was Medihaze that you described it as? Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: That, that was the first one, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and give, it, give it to him and see that there were no seizures. That must have been a remarkable feeling for you.
1: It's it, it's still hard for me to talk about to this day. I mean, go back and just put yourself in that position. I mean, at that point, Silas was laying on the couch. Um, he had lost. He wasn't speaking as much. He wasn't getting up and running around. He was just regressing to the point where he was laying on the couch, seizing. And you see some of that clips in the video that I put out mm-hmm. where my days were sitting next to him crying, putting out this heavy benzo in his mouth. Every time these cluster seizures wouldn't stop, and that was our that's what we had that was our option and you know that it was at that point that we really had to come to terms with we we had to look at our son's mortality and realize that this isn't something that we can be we're going to lose our son and we're it's going to be slow and horrific so to go from that to they just they're just gone they just stopped it's something that um is just as hard to articulate as, as how traumatic it was to go through in the first place. It, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And I worked with children in mental health for 15 years with all sorts of psychotropic medications, all sorts of medications to help different mental conditions. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. And it was within a matter of a couple of weeks that he was up and running around and was not only functioning at the level he was prior to this you know really getting dangerous but his cognitive skills improved significantly his speech improved his sentence structure improved his cognition being able to to pr- take in information process it and, and show us that he understood what we were saying each one of those improved significantly and when you see that with your own eyes and you balance that against the rhetoric of we don't know the long-term effects maybe they lose a point of iq but the the converse i realized that the conversation is all wrong um we are dealing with kids who will not live to be adults if we as a society don't set an infrastructure in place that allows us to give them these options is medicine. And the conversation against that is that kids might lose an IQ point or two really made me aware of how little our elected officials, our regulators, and our general community really understood about who these children were that needed these meds and how severe the problem was.
0: You're bang on because it's no different here than it is there. Uh, you can give kids psychotropic medications, and the, the uh, authorities are fine with that. But give them cannabis, which nobody in the history of taking cannabis there's no record of anyone dying from it. And it. It's
1: insane. It's absolutely insane, and it's and it and the arguments don't even make sense because you know I'm I don't know you know the the system in, in Canada, obviously, as well as I do in the United States. But just take for a moment the medications that these children are given. None of them are approved for use in children. None of them have studies for long-term effects, but we do know that they'll kill you. When you give a a two-year-old or a six-year-old child phenobarbital, you're not giving them something that's, that's good for kids. You're giving it to them because the option it's death if you don't. It's the same It's the same approach as chemotherapy. You don't give that to you because it's good for your body or safe in any way. You take it because if you don't, the the other option is likely death. And when we talk about the medications that we give these children, um, you know, phenobarbital, omphi, heavy benzos, heavy opioids, none of those have this approval or this standard that people want to apply to cannabis. Yet those drugs do have a track record of horrible addiction Um, they do have a track record of horrible overdose deaths but cannabis does not so the, the the argument really fails if you have someone who can just uh articulate it well enough to to explain to them why it doesn't pertain to the situation
0: forrest specifically what are local authorities in your community proposing
1: well they've banned the outdoor cultivation of cannabis so banned it completely banned it completely well they, they they put it on the ballot and that's when i started fighting. what they what they put on the ballot was we our local board of of uh, supervisors they they control land ordinance you know those sort of things and, and not sure if it's similar up there but basically they banned the outdoor cultivation then they put it on the ballot specifically to prevent future boards from being able to change it because in the united states the vote of the people You know, reign supreme. So they knew that if they put it on the ballot and the people solidified that ordinance with the popular vote, future board members would not have the authority to change it. So not only did they want to strip those rights without protecting these children, but they wanted to make it permanent. And so what I did is I started fighting heavily, and that's where we started getting media attention down here. And we ended up beating the ordinance to make it permanent. So they weren't able to solidify it by popular vote, but that left the ordinance in place. It didn't change anything. So they they still put a very restrictive ban. And after we won that, they decided they were going to try and change it to allow for some outdoor cultivation. But really it's just on the surface. You have to own 20 plus acres and meet setbacks that are, are not sustainable. So, um, we essentially have a, a quasi ban on cultivation period up here, and then they 've implemented a hundred dollars per plant per day fines if they find them you know so mm-hmm. they really made an effort to make cultivation not possible, and I think from the outside, people see. California is a legal state, so everything's great. But when you really get down to it, uh, counties and local municipalities are doing everything they can to fight this evil plant with kind of a a very outdated dogma. Right now, because we cannot cultivate, without cultivation, there's no medicine for these kids. And for children like Silas and a lot of rare epilepsy or or rare condition kids, just having your standard CBD oil in the stores – like I said, isn't enough. Uh, We tried that for a year and a half. A lot of these kids need higher concentrations, specialized trains and phenotypes, and we need the ability for charitable nonprofits to treat these families, educate these families, and make specific medication for for kids who aren't going to have a condition that a company is going to want to mass-produce a medication for. Is
0: there an opportunity for voters in your area to have that ordinance withdrawn
1: well because we kept it from being solidified by popular vote we it kind of we woke up the the public here and we were able to get a new board a board of super, friendly board of supervisor elected but it's like you know you got to get three votes really it has to be with with campaigning through the board the local board and and that just takes time but yes the the option is there Because we defeated that uh, measure, now we have the option to change it at a local level. And that's what they were trying to prevent us from being able to do. The thing is, is that the damage is already done, though. What, What I try to articulate to these people is some of these children don't have the time for people who don't want to educate themselves to figure out that the information they've been told their whole lifetime wasn't true. To say we'll figure it out in the next few years is all well and good if you are healthy. But what about these children or these adults who don't have that kind of time frame? Where's the protection from our community to ensure that they are not victims of people just not wanting to do their homework and understand the difference between medicinal and recreational use? You know, I, I firmly believe, like Gandhi used to say, not to get deep, too deep on us but you know the measure of a civilization is how we treat its weakest members and in the conversation of cannabis the most critically ill the most fragile are constantly the last to be brought up and i'm seeing that all throughout the united states it's all about taxes money revenue in this green rush of business who wants to line up and sell cannabis products and see that golden fortune And maybe if we have time, then we talk about protecting the critically ill, the dying, the sick. And that's just something that um, I just – I can't sit by and watch and not say something about. Forrest,
2: um, you know, a couple of things that strike me. First of all, you know, I found found it interesting what you were talking about with – Authorities saying, Oh, well, you know, they might lose an IQ point or two. What do they think is going on when these children are having seizures and are having this continual um, assault on their brain? I mean, they're getting brain damage.
1: Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, it just, it, it comes down to that lack of a true understanding. And this is why I have changed my approach. And it's uncomfortable for some, but, you know, we started the hashtag make them watch. And it's really kind of that sort of attitude, which is if you're going to have outdated beliefs, if you're not going to attempt to get informed and educate yourself about the risks and rewards of of cannabis medicine, then you shouldn't be spared the consequences of those policy decisions. If I'm going to have to watch a kid die and suffer daily because of your decisions, you're going to have to watch too, and I encourage families. And it's difficult, you know. They think these kids are rare because they don't hear about them very often, and, and they're relatively rare. But when you get into one in fifty thousand for certain conditions, those numbers still add up when we talk about our nations and and the millions of people who who live here. So I encourage those families to uh, film their suffering and post it and share it and make them watch. The consequences of irresponsible, outdated cannabis laws, um, because it's the only way we can get them to understand the damage that is caused by treating this with subject with outdated, misinformed, disproven uh, fears and and concerns that are what they often bring up when they're talking about cannabis. Yeah,
2: I, th- I think we'll um, definitely be sharing uh, Silas's video on both our webpage and um, our Facebook page. Um, Forrest, what is Caladrius Network?
1: The Caladrius Network is a not-for-profit organization that I am starting, and our mission is to improve the quality of life of catastrophically ill children and their families through education and individualized cannabis therapies. So what does that mean? It, it, Basically, I watched my son go from healthy to, again, in a very dangerous position due to uninformed regulators. Um, So I really felt like something had to be done to protect this vulnerable population while we go back and forth as adults about how we're going to regulate cannabis. Um, So the Caladrius Network is an organization that's meant to, do two things primarily. Teach families who are coming into the cannabis, what we call cannabis naive, right? Coming into the cannabis industry with no understanding to teach them very quickly about cannabinoids, cannabis medicine, how it works so that two things don't happen. One, they're not taken advantage of by this rush of entrepreneurs who are all in line telling parents that they have the miracle cure product Mm -hmm. for their kids. And not all, frankly, the majority of them don't know what they're talking about. Um, There are some good ones out there, but I think we've all seen this rush of people who say, hey, I can grow cannabis in my backyard. I've got olive oil in my cabinet. Bam, medicine. And they just don't understand uh, how complex it is to really start to narrow down treatments for some of these kids. So to protect against that, because I've known several families who have been through that, and I was one of them, but then they give up and then their child dies. And The person who was telling them they've tried everything or sold everything, I don't think they realize the risk involved if you're giving medical advice without having the proper background. The other thing is that we partner with cannabis businesses. So there's a lot of cultivation that happens up here, really, with just the leftovers of the cannabis industry, the machine trim, the, the shake, those things, we can produce medicines and give them to the families for free if we have the right strains being cultivated. What we do is we partner with businesses now to bring in donations, and we have our own manufacturers, and we try to basically educate families, and then if we can, if we have what they need, we provide medicine at no cost. I basically think that the cannabis community has an opportunity to be one of the greatest forces for social good that our societies have seen in my lifetime. But they're missing it. Um, And the promise of fame and fortune and the big money that cannabis typically brought in is, in my opinion, causing a lot of the community members to make the same mistake that a lot of the community constantly complains about big pharmaceutical companies, at least in this country. We hear a lot of complaints about Big pharmaceutical companies uh, patenting things and putting patients over, or profits before patients. That's a constant thing that we hear. But nobody's talking about how the cannabis community is now going to be faced with that same moral choice. No one's talking about the fact that now we're learning that cannabinoids can not only help millions of people, but improve the lives of billions of people. And We're going to then be faced with the same choice. Are we going to be putting our hand out saying your money or your life to these critically ill people? When you talk about having to spend over $2,000 a month for some of these oils, that's the decision we're asking families to make. And I don't think it's necessary. I think simply with wise partnerships, everybody collaborating and pitching in a little bit here and there, we can easily take care of the most vulnerable in our society at no charge.
0: Very well said, Correct, Forrest. Yeah. Just before we go, uh, how is Silas doing today?
1: You know, Silas is doing okay today. Actually, he's doing really well today. Um, he missed school on Monday, so this was recorded, I think it's Wednesday. So he missed school a couple days ago, and it was a really rough day. And we post-shared that on Silas's Facebook page. Mm-hmm. But then the next day was good, and today was good. And, you know, that's really what we've learned is – with a situation like this you learn to take it one day at a time and you learn to appreciate every day and every moment and um you know that's what we do so today he is uh, smiling and upright and be getting to be a normal little boy and, and we're extremely grateful for that
2: so forrest if somebody's interested in going to silas's page what is it
1: So we have your general kind of update on our family page uh, that started years ago for folks who just were asking questions and wanted to hear how Silas was doing. And that's uh, facebook.com forward slash hope for Silas, H-O-P-E-F-O-R-S-I-L-A-S. So facebook.com forward slash hope for Silas.
2: Awesome. And Caladrius is org. Do I have that correct?
1: That is correct. Yeah. And right now we have our, basically our website's going to launch any day now, depending on when this airs, it may or may not be up, but there is a a sign in sheet. So if you want updates from our organization about what we're doing, who we're partnering with, um, you can sign up there and you can contact us because really what I'm hoping is for this to be a model that can be recreated anywhere. So um, we are we are really trying to do something different and doing something truly altruistic and charitable. And what we're hoping is that if we can establish this model in a way that works, that then we can then recreate that uh, in any neighborhood. So, oh, if you're listening. Please reach
0: out to us. Yeah, Forrest. It was great of you to do this. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, Silas is lucky; he's got a, a great set of parents to help him out and a great sister. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, thank you very much, Forrest. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it, another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.